Na mani ngadlu gana yartanga in barindi ngadlu pork na poki unangu yalaka tarkari yara tampendi ngadlu porachi yaicha mena yaicha yarta kokuma tampendi mani nina pudni gana yartana nina padni panima poki mukabando tola poro tikandi tenanya panda tapana tutokuma yaicha gana yara yaicha yara today we are meeting on sacred gana land we pay respects to all the Ghana that were and all the Ghana that are. We pay respects to all of our elders, Earthside and beyond, and to all First Nations people. On behalf of the ancestors and Ghana people, we welcome you to our country and ask that as you travel these plains, you remember the people that walked here before you. The spirit still lives amongst the steel, the concrete, the roads and the lawns. Wherever you go, you stand on unceded Aboriginal land. Always was, always will be. Super, super tax reforms, greedflation, the end of killer kitchen tops, and the good news is about cute animals. This is the week on Wednesday live. Hello and welcome to the Week on Wednesday, live from Adelaide Fringe. In case you couldn't tell by my somewhat stilted introduction today, <laughs> my name is Ben Davison. I am your co-host for this very special episode of the Week on Wednesday, live from Adelaide Fringe. I am joined here in the yurt at the back of the Migration Museum by the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, my wife, your friend, and Adelaide Fringe binge junkie, Van Batum. Hi! Thanks for coming, everyone. And I've got to say how wonderful is it that we have, without a doubt, the best technical manager in the world, which is Artie up the back there. And yet Ben and I bring the cloud of technical dysfunction wherever we go. We just radiate uh, problems with the sound. So I feel like we've brought the atmosphere of our shed to you. Now, we do have to apologise that Germanicus the Dashhound is not here. No. Uh, he's enjoying some respite with his nana. Yes. So he may yet make another appearance before the season is over, but he is not here today. You'll have to come to the yurt to find out whether or not he's here. The comfort yurt. The comfort yurt. He's very comforting in here, isn't it? It's quite nice. Van, look, I want to just quickly ask, what have you been seeing? Because you've been here the whole time and you've been engaging in the fringe and I noticed you're wearing a particularly political T-shirt today and I just, I just want you to share with the audience listening at home and with the uh, good people here in the yurt, what you've been watching, what you've been seeing, and, and what's with the T-shirt? Well, um, obviously, it's a full year since the planned three-day conquest of Ukraine by Russia. Um, I'd just like to congratulate the Ukrainians for a year of proving Russia wrong. Uh, I buy these T-shirts from a company called St Javelin. I've got heaps of them. I absolutely love them. All the money goes towards supporting Ukrainian troops in the fight for democracy and against authoritarianism, literally the most important fight any of us will ever fight, and the people of Ukraine are doing it superbly. So if you do want to channel your money towards Ukraine, St Javelin sell all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, I also have 
have a wonderful pink hoodie that says nasty things about warships that I can't mention on a podcast that's distributed by Apple, but I do suggest that you check it out. Of course, I've been fringe binging, which is my favourite thing in the whole world, and I've got to say it's enraging that the advertiser Mm. is still boycotting the fringe, put out an outrageous statement the other day. Can you imagine now theatre people in the audience (laughs) apparently... People at the advertiser resented the fact that they had to work at night time. And I'm like, well, would you would you like us to put on shows at nine in the morning? Because I've got to say we're doing it at five and it's a pretty close call there. But okay. Uh, but it was it was atrocious. And the and I just like I love this event. I mm. love the fringe. And I love the fringe because this is where the social and artistic conversation is at. Twelve hundred acts. More tickets sold in the month of fringe than are sold in the AFL in the state of South Australia all season. Mm. This is where international minds come to be funny, to be entertaining, to engage people, to talk to people about what they they want to talk about. And I want to see an Australia where everybody comes here for this experience, where everybody, every media organisation, every commentator comes and is part of the discussion about who we are, where we're going, where we sit in the world. I've seen some awesome shows last night. I saw um, uh, Fool's Paradise, which is uh, Lecoq Clown's show, Mm -hmm. um, which was with Brooke, uh, sorry, Brick Plummer, absolutely hilarious. It's just about a relationship. It's a wonderful hour. I saw the launch of Screen Age with Fenton Bailey, who Mm -hmm. is the producer of RuPaul's Drag Race, who was interviewed by Heather Kroll, who's the director of the Adelaide Fringe. Fascinating, amazing conversation about drag, about branding, about the pop cultural moment. I got lost in the kaleidoscope at uh, the Garden of Unearthly Delights and had full-on existential collapse, trapped with infinite reflections of my own self. I saw between, oh, it was full-on, I burst into tears afterwards. I spent half an hour in this mirror maze and everybody else is like, ah, it's so funny, I can't find my way out. And I was like, who am I? Where am I going? What do I mean? I'm trapped with myself. The perfect art experience, five stars would recommend. Um, obviously, I want You're everybody. You're in the comfort yurt now, so it's okay. I want, to, I want everybody to see Manbo. Sam Dugmore is in the audience today. Extraordinary performer. <laughs> Fantastic show about masculinity. Like, I'm just soaking it all up. I'm so into it. It's awesome. There's so much going on. So much, so much going on. And of course, you and I got to go to the launch of the Yes campaign after after the last week of Wednesday Live. I'm wearing the t-shirt that the, the campaign gave me. You're wearing the hat. I've got stickers for anybody who wants to cover themselves in Yes stickers after the show. So if you're not here, you're not going to get a sticker. And if you don't come next week or the week after, you're not going to get a sticker either. <laughs> so look, Van, we do need to talk about some of the news of the week because that is the purpose of the podcast uh, and of course big news is around super tax reforms oh everybody strap in because it's going to get really exciting and i promise you in advance this is going to be the most exciting conversation about superannuation reform you're ever ever present for well i think it's exciting i know you do darling we've been talking about it all day <laughs> So for those who don't know, 80,000 Australians with accounts of more than $3 million in superannuation are going to be taxed at 30% instead of the current 15% uh, rate on their earnings. Now, 
it's important to remember that if your if your earnings are that high, you would normally pay a forty five percent tax rate. Okay, so there's a lot of Murdoch media just going off tap at the moment, saying that this is somehow class war, that this is going to smash superannuation. Peter Credlin has denounced this as socialism. Everyone, just in case you've ever been yearning for socialism, apparently we've we've finally done it. We're here. And all the talk was a really minor uh, taxation reform proposal about superannuation on balances of over $3 million. I just had no idea it could be this simple. From a bishop, <laughs> as a person devoted to the realisation of socialism, I mean, I yeah. can rest now. Yeah. Go on holiday, more well, leaves, baby. Well, anyway, so uh, Bromham Bishop has denounced it on Sky, not to be outdone by Peter Credlin. Roman has decided it is full communism. <laughs> Which is going to come as a surprise to the 99.5% of Australians who this doesn't affect, right? Because fundamentally this is a very small cohort of people. Anyone who's trying to convince you that you're going to have $3 million in your superannuation by the time you retire or at any point in your life is trying to convince you that you'll be rich, right? They're basically trying to convince you that you'll be a movie star, a rock god, or some kind of financial broker who basically steals from everyday working people. <laughs> now, maybe you are that person, and if you are, you've probably come to the wrong place. But um, the reality is that there is this will raise $2 billion a year. So $2 billion a year that we were handing out to people who already have $3 million, not just have $3 million, but have it in their super account. Now, I saw one asset manager try and say that this was terrible, this was punishing people in their 60s, that they've got clients who've got more than $3 million in their super who still rent their home. And, and I'm just like, if your financial advisor is saying to you, Oh no, don't buy a home, put $3 million into superannuation. <laughs> you probably want to ask who's paying their incentives because that is some very strange advice. Now, this is not financial advice. We're not licensed to give financial advice. <laughs> I'll be very clear about that. But shop around, folks. Just shop around. It is extraordinary. And the, the kind of responses that we've seen, there is no coherent argument uh, opposed to these changes. Like if you have $3 million mm in super, that is an extraordinary amount of money. That means that you have earned an extraordinary amount of money over the course of your life anyway. And this is the thing. These changes are not retrospective. They're not reaching their hands into the money that you've already got. It's based on the fu on future. Yeah. 1st of July 2025 is when this will kick in. So for the vast majority of people listening to this podcast, there will be no change. In fact, I would say for everyone who's listening to this podcast, there will be no change. But I want to put this in. Apart from that one guy. Hi. <laughs> I want to put this into some perspective as well, right? So Matt Canavan <laughs> tried to argue that these changes were not worth doing because the savings are only $2 per week for every Australian. Now, by that logic, it's like, Matt, you've just discovered the concept of taxation, mate. <laughs> That's what a Commonwealth is. It's bringing our money together for the betterment of society. Now, let me put this into some perspective. That, that, that $2 billion a year is about 30% of the gap in public school funding in this country. That, so the collectivization of our 
Commonwealth actually provides for millions and millions of households to have things like better schools, hospitals, roads, you know, the things that we all get to enjoy as opposed to 80,000 people getting. And this is the other, yeah, I'm just full of stats today. This is the other, this is the other stat. So those 80,000 people were getting three times the value of the pension just in tax concession. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like an entirely unjust and unjustifiable use of our Commonwealth. I'm just trying to work out that what you're spending your money on if $3 million is not enough for your retirement. Mm-hmm. Like, what are, you, what, are you, what are you doing? Like, where's it going? What are you buying? Where are you going? Where are you staying? Like, I, I mean, I'm, everybody knows, I'm, I'm sure I do have a penchant for slogan T-shirts and plastic jewellery, but even I would struggle to spend $3 million on those things. Like, it's just, it's unfathomable. Um, but the idea when they wheel out Matt Canavan, it's basically like a slam dunk argument. It's like Matt Canavan's complaining. Sounds like it must be a pretty good idea, actually. I'm, one wonders what he was wearing, what costume he preferred for this particular statement. But this is what I mean. Like the, the really interesting thing about these mooted changes is that they're hardly revolutionary. Mm. They are suggesting that a gap which has opened up between rich and poor in this country, and this is really what it's about, the, the polarisation between the two ends of the Australian economy has not been this broad since the days of the Depression. Mm. Right? The rich in this country are doing unbelievably well and there are so many mechanisms within the economy that have swollen to, to help their wealth, to assist their accumulation of more and more and more money at the expense of our Commonwealth and our shared resources and our shared opportunities, public education, environmental protection, conservation, you know, better infrastructure, transport, all the things that we rely on collectively to be healthier have suffered as this massive redirect and exploitation, frankly, has benefited those who are already extremely wealthy. Absolutely. And I think it's worth you know, we always say on this show, you should join your union. And I noticed some union T-shirts in the crowd here in the yurt and welcome, comrades, to the show and full communism now, apparently. <laughs> um, but, you know, superannuation was fought for for every Australian. Now, it's not a perfect system and everybody acknowledges that there needs to be improvements made to it. And this is just one small one. Uh, but it is fundamental to ensuring the dignity of retirement. The idea that people should die in poverty was something that was quite common and still is in many parts of the world. Superannuation has given the working class of this country the opportunity to have dignified retirements. Now, as I say, it's not perfect and there's a long way to go. One of the things that's come out today, right, is that actually superannuation needs to be paid on paid parental leave. It's something the union movement's talked about a lot. You can join your union at australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. It's paying it on and (laughs) paying super on parental leave now will only cost $200 million. So you put this into perspective, 80,000 people, we can raise $2 billion just by slightly reducing their tax concession and we can provide more than twice that many people with superannuation on their paid parental leave, which over time will 
compound. We're getting very financially technical now, but it will compound. See the light in his eyes. He loves it so much. <laughs> He's just got to drop the word compound into the discussion. It will compound and compound so that over time the gap between women's retirement and men's retirement closes. And fundamentally, that is so important. As you've often said on this show, the fastest growing cohort of homeless people in this country are women over the age of 60. That is true. And And it is an extraordinary problem to the point where dedicated homelessness services uh, are being invested in. I did some work with Macaulay House in Victoria, which provides uh, accommodation for women of retirement age who find themselves homeless and it, for all kinds of reasons. You know, the the economy, I, this may be a shock, everybody, I am so thrilled you're all sitting down, is kind of geared towards a male breadwinner model. I know <laughs> out there to suggest ben is, ben is doing the dance of white male privilege here where, you know, you're sort of out of time and it's in the hips and never, ever get your feet off the ground. And It's all elbows and awkwardness, yeah. Yeah, so this is whenever comparative advantage you will be raised so beautifully by your lesbian parents, can I just say. But, I mean, this is this is a huge issue. Mm. And looking at the important thing about this discussion about superannuation is that it is having a public conversation about what is fair. Mm. And it is not fair that 80,000 people with more than $3 million, I cannot underline that enough, are, are being portrayed specifically in the Murdoch media as if they are victims of the economy when these are the people who the economy serves. And it is extraordinary. Like there was comment in The Guardian today that was about the Murdoch narrative that is straight out of the gate that this is bad, this is class war, this is socialism, this is communism, you know, the sky is falling in. And realistically it is an interesting sort of watershed because Australians aren't buying it. Mm. Australians aren't swallowing the Murdoch line and defining this discussion in the Murdochian terms that that particular organisation and infrastructure would have us prefer because I think the the problems are quite obvious. I think over the, the past decade in particular, we have seen this gap become more and more apparent, this two-speed economy where if you're doing well, you're doing brilliantly and the economy doesn't need to serve you anymore. Like you do not need, you are already a prince. No one is taking your kingdom away. They're just making a deduction that is redistributed fairly to people who need the support. And I've got to say, having gone through the experience with my mother um, in and as her carer over the past couple of years, the fact that my mother had some superannuation. My mother was a public servant um, and worked until she retired to look after her mother. And the superannuation my mother had just meant that in the last years of her life when she wasn't working, there was capital there to pay for things like a new fridge and getting the plumbing fixed. Because for, for those of you who haven't considered this before, when you retire, you can't get loans because you don't have an income to get personal loans. You need access to capital. And when we talk about dignity in retirement, what superannuation is for is to ensure that you can continue to function, that you can have some kind of comfort, that if the roof of your home falls in, you do not have to live without a roof. Yeah, absolutely. And look, the Murdoch... Uh, fear campaign on this is going to be extensive, right? We've already seen they're coming after the family home and what next and all the, all the usual rhetoric. And I think it's really important that we continue to push back and ground this in the realities that you've just mentioned, that the economy is working very well for those it works well for. And 
I just keep coming back to we are a commonwealth. You know, we we do best when we work together. We do best when we go, how do we help those who have the least? That's how Australia does its best every single time. Personally, I'd have, I'd have liked to have seen the tax concession reduced by even more. Yeah, and I think that it's opening up space for a conversation about reforms in the economy that uh, that need to be revisited and talked about and discussed. Yeah. And raising public education, it's really important to have that discussion because, I mean, I'm a product of the state school system and I love my state school education. I went to the best school in the universe, Port Hacking High School, Miranda, absolutely fantastic place. And I've obviously got a fantastic education. I have four degrees, I've travelled the world. I am in this yurt. It's fantastic. (laughs) But we keep asking public school teachers who relentlessly deliver miracles to do so increasingly at their own expense. Mm. And that's not fair. There needs to be a fairness conversation that we keep having these fantastic outcomes with state education. You get a world-class education going to a state school in this country, but your teacher will be exhausted along the way. And that's a fairness conversation that has to be addressed. We have to look at the opportunities within the economy for reform, for redistribution, for reinvestment. It's okay. We are actually allowed to change the structure of things as we go along. But I do want to raise this point about some of the interesting ideological realities that have been provoked by the superannuation reform conversation, and that's with the character of our friends, the Teals, or maybe not as good friends as we thought they were, Ben. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. Because they, of course, have hedged, right? We've talked before about the the Menzian nature of the Teals, that they are, in fact, economically conservative. They are naturally inclined towards the higher income brackets because they represent seats where there are more people in the higher income brackets. They are socially progressive often, but they are absolutely hedging their bets when it comes to superannuation reform because I think they're looking around, you know, if this were in a different part of the world, perhaps they'd be looking around the audience going, hmm, instead of one person with a $3 million super balance, maybe half their audience has a $3 million super balance. There have been some very funny statements of the Matt Canavan, well, is it even, if it only raises $2 billion, is it even really worth doing? The teals, some of the teals, Kylie Tink in particular has come out going, oh, well, I mean, people may consider investing in superannuation at all and we want to encourage people to save for retirement. And I'm like, if you've got $3 million to put in superannuation, like, and oh, well, you know, they'll spend it on something else. Like what? I want to know what. Yeah, look, it, end of the day, super remains a very tax-effective way to save your retirement. It will always be that. And this is a small reform that has an impact on 0.5% of the population and raises $2 billion a year. Now, the Teals might object to it because it disproportionately impacts their electorates. Maybe. But at the end of the day... I'm sure they can comfort themselves in front of their pools in their five-bedroom homes. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Look, talking about making change, there's some other really... I think this is... I think this is good news. I think it's I think it's good news at the end of sort of bad news, right? So I don't know how much people know about uh, stone top kitchen benches because stone top kitchen benches are actually killing people in this country. The good news here is that there is now an agreement amongst all of the states and the Commonwealth to put an end to this 
just incredible situation where you have as 10,000 people, the estimate is 10,000 people have contracted silicosis. This is a lung disease that comes about as a result of exposure to the dust from creating stone top benches. Now, I can't imagine anybody going, yes, I'm very happy to have people die in order for me to have a nicer looking bench top. I don't think anybody has made that calculation, right? But fundamentally, half a million Australian workers have been exposed to the dust that causes silicosis. It's called silica dust. As many as one in four stonemasons in this country have probably already been exposed. And now... This has really come to light. There's been a big campaign. The Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, the Australian Workers Union and the CFMEU have run a campaign in conjunction with the Australian Council of Trade Unions. There was an expose on 60 Minutes. Tony Burke, to his credit, he's the Industrial Relations Minister, moved very quickly, called together all of the state ministers and has cracked down on this. There had been a bit of a plan in place that's now been accelerated significantly. But I just want to share with people very quickly a story where a a company was found to have exposed their staff to silica dust and that all of the staff ended up with silicosis in this company. Which is incurable, by the way. It's an incurable, deadly lung disease. Isn't it known as popcorn lung? Popcorn lung, yeah. Which really, I mean, gives you a pretty palpable understanding of the level of damage that silicosis does if you end up with popcorn lung. But when we talk about the need for governments to make reform and change and the role of unions in that process... This has been over a decade. People have known about silicosis for a long time. This is not new, right? So, yes, we're talking about it now, and yes, governments have taken action now. But the the risks of silicosis and popcorn lung have been around and known for well over a decade. In fact, in other countries, it's banned. You can't even do this, right? Now we've been in a phase-out process and all the rest of it. But to give you a sense of what some employers, not all, but what some employers are prepared to do to make profit. Now, as I say, I don't think anybody renovating their kitchen has gone, you know, I hope some people die for my bench top. I don't think anybody has done that. But there are employers who know this kills people and their response to workers saying, this is a problem. You're not taking the proper safety precautions. My fatal lung disease is a problem. It's. Can you imagine having to say that? Having to actually raise this as a workplace issue is just an absolutely extraordinary illumination of how far we still have to go as a society to provide dignity and security and the expectation of safety to working people. Continue. Well, yeah, because fundamentally you're absolutely right, Van. A recent federal court case heard that an employer, this is a quote from the case, keep in mind every single person in this workplace was found to have popcorn lung, was found to have been exposed. The court ruled in their favour, awarded compensation, and the employer said, how are these dogs sitting at home, nothing wrong with them? Right? This is 
the kind of thing that workers have to put up with. Now, these people have had their life expectancy severely shortened. And it's not just the people working the stone, right? These are people who are in the office, in administration, because the dust gets on everything. This is the asbestos of the 21st century, and it needs to be gotten rid of. It needs to be removed, right? Now, full credit to those unions who are doing that work, to the journalists who are exposing this as a major problem. But when we talk about making change, we absolutely have to remember that there are powerful forces that have a vested interest in stopping that change. And some of them, quite frankly, do not care whether we live or die. No, they don't. I mean, I, I say this often that the, and I, I might have said this last week because this is, my, you know, my favourite refrain, is beware of anybody who wants to cut red tape because red tape in the workplace saves lives. Red tape keeps people safe. It keeps you as a consumer safe. It keeps community safe. It keeps family safe. Strong regulation around safety is literally the difference between life and death. And if you don't believe me, I want you to Google the words East Palestine train accident in the United States where a train carrying deadly chemicals derailed mm. and an entire town has been contaminated. They don't know what the health effects are going to be and the, the results, this particular accident, from uh, the Trump administration tearing down regulations. There was a rule during the Trump administration, if you wanted to introduce a new regulation, you had to remove two existing regulations. Well, the result was a train crash. There was an interview with a woman today saying all of her neighbours are leaving town because their homes are worth nothing. They don't know what's going to happen with the children's health. They don't know what lies down the road. And this is the same thing. Like We need to constantly reinforce a culture of safety and protection and a prioritisation of human life and human value, whether it's in a neighbourhood, whether it's by a railway station or a railway line, whether it's in a workplace, always that priority. That sounds pretty rational, um, but, of course, I'm quite sure the Bromham Bishop will denounce it as full communism. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Look, if full communism means that every worker gets to go home safe at the end of their shift, I'm all for it. You know? Yeah, I've heard that about you. Yeah, that's <laughs> kind of my bag. Um, but, look, it feeds into the next issue as well, right, because – We've talked a lot recently about inflation. We it's the it's the conversation that just keeps coming up. And let's one be, could even say it's increasing exponentially. Hey. <laughs> Four <laughs> university degrees. For those listening at home, Van did a little drum solo there by herself. Um, but look you know, we, we are in the era of greedflation. I think Sally McManus uh, called it the greed price spiral, right? I love it. I love the greed price spiral. I love it. Because it is fundamentally now the reality in this country, not just in this country, but also in the UK and the US and in many countries around the world, that we have a we have a problem with greedflation. Corporations are taking advantage of some supply constraints to jack up prices far beyond, far beyond what their input costs are. Now, for those who listened to the weekend wrap, you'll be familiar with some of these numbers, but I'm going to throw them out there for those who haven't heard them before. 69% of inflation is due to profits. 
that corporations have increased their prices by an extra $160 billion over and above input costs. This is just greed. This is just what we can get away with, right? Now, if you had, if they hadn't done that, if they hadn't jacked up their prices by so much, the rate of inflation in this country, at least, would actually be within the target range, in inverted commas, for the Reserve Bank, meaning the Reserve Bank would not have put up interest rates. So fundamentally, the driver for the Reserve Bank putting up interest rates is actually corporate profiteering. Oh, it is absolutely outrageous. Our friend Jim Stanford, our favourite you know, Canadian economist, has been doing some assessment around the inflationary situation in Australia. I like that we have favourite economists from different countries. We have, we have favourite economists, we have favourite pollsters, um, you know, we have favourite investment analysis. Like, we really have such a fun household. I can't <laughs> even tell you, and I just want to tell people, this is what happens when you forget to have children. Um <laughs> You can decide for yourself if you envy it or not. Uh, if you do, we also play Ghost of Tsushima on Sunday nights. So the two PlayStation household. So, I mean, this is the issue. So Jim Stanford uh, had some analysis in out the other day saying that this e- these figures are, are the reality of the inflationary problem that we have. Yeah. And, and it is becoming more and more of a problem. People are now photographing their grocery shops online and comparing what they're spending on the same groceries this week, today, to what they were spending on groceries a month ago. Well, let's talk about that because Coles profits are up 17%. Woolworths profits are up 14%. And there are record profits right throughout the economy. If you Google record profits, you're going to get the big ones, right? Like you're going to get Qantas and you're going to get the Commonwealth Bank and you're going to get NAB and Glencore and Sand and Shell and bigger cheese, who'd have guessed it? But you're also going to find a whole bunch of small companies that are absolutely profiteering here. The only thing that trickles down in this economy is the profiteering mindset. Because let me tell you, there are corporations out there that you've never heard of that are recording hundredfold increases in profits at a time when we are supposed to be all suffering from rising prices. We're not all suffering from rising prices. Working people are suffering from rising prices. That's the reality. And some more information came out today, right? So during the pandemic, we talked about how Australians were saving money. Australians were putting money aside, you know, good on us. For the first time in a long time, people were finding a way to actually get ahead of the curve. And at one point, we got up to just above 20% of our income was being put aside as savings. Now, that's a that's a, not a bad situation, right? That has dropped to 4.5%. So people are eating into their savings, eating into what they have put aside for a rainy day. Literally eating into it. Yeah, literally, literally eating into it. It is unbelievable that we have this situation. At the same time, mind you, unemployment is creeping back up. It's gone up 0.2 percentage points just in a month. So yes, unemployment is still relatively low, but it's going up. Prices, we know, have gone up. There's still talk that the Reserve Bank is going to put up interest rates again. And it is kind of extraordinary that, I mean, Ben and I keep coming back to this because this is the universal experience, well, not quite the universal experience. 80,000 people with $3 million in their super accounts are not phased by increases to the price of groceries. They probably get the home help to buy them anyway. (laughs) 
let's face it. So that sector of the economy does not need to worry about the price increases that are going on in supermarkets at the petrol station. One of the largest areas for price gouging internationally driving this kind of crazy inflation is, of course, energy markets. And the fact that energy corporations have used the war in Ukraine as an excuse to put up prices when they haven't necessarily needed to. Well, again, and that comes back to the structure of our economy, right? So the idea that Australian gas is sold on a global market at a global price, uh, even if it's sold to someone in Australia for use in Australia to manufacture things in Australia that will be sold in Australia is a bit weird. It means that we don't have access to our resources to do the things we need to keep our prices low. But a multinational corporation whose board might sit in New York or London or somewhere else gets to profit from our resources, whether it's gas or whatever it might be, because they're selling them on a global market that is spooked by the war in Ukraine, that is being driven by this constant talk of inflation. And I want to come back to the Reserve Bank's role in all of this, right? Because the Reserve Bank... The Reserve Bank is supposed to be the independent body that sets monetary policy for the Australian economy, right? This is the very sensibly and rationally. Very sensible, very rational. Except it's not. It's off chops. Yeah, it's absolutely off chops. It's off chops. It's a technical term, you know, in this lovely chat about macroeconomics. It's a Friedmanite. It's a Friedmanite ideological hotbed that fundamentally misunderstands what is happening in the economy or is deliberately choosing to misinterpret it because it continues to say we are in danger of a wage price spiral when in fact in real terms, in real terms and for those who are listening who keep telling me online, wages have gone up 3.3%. Real terms means the rate of wage increase minus the rate of inflation. So in real terms, wages have gone back by a record amount. Now the Reserve Bank is still going to put up Interest rates. Why? Because of ideology. Yeah, I mean, and this is the the problem. Like we've now had 40 years of a neoliberal framework of the economy that insists the more you deregulate business, corporate behaviour, you know, resources will go to the correct place because the market, invisible hand of capitalism, they actually use terms like this. I don't know how many of you have been strolling around the ideological neighbourhood of Friedman neoliberal economics recently, but they genuinely believe there is an invisible hand of capitalism where, you know, collective will uh, through the market will just make mysterious decisions and resources will go to the right place and there'll be, you know, limits on behaviour based on collective It is nonsense. Like, it is absolute nonsense. And we're living in the consequences of these 40 years of deregulations. Mm. Again, getting back to don't trust anyone who wants to cut red tape. Well, Alan Collar, right? Alan Collar, who's on the ABC, who writes for the New Daily, has said, once again, the Reserve Bank is trying to beat inflation with the blunt instrument of interest rates, but this time it's different. And it is different. It is different because there is no wage price spiral. The invisible hand of the market, which just sounds creepy to me. I mean, like, really? 
Markets are... Don't let the invisible hand of the market touch you. Yeah, that's right. Be careful on your way out. It's <laughs> Economies are millions of decisions made by individuals. People make decisions. It's not invisible. It's not unquantifiable. People make decisions. But it's also governed by structures. Absolutely. It's governed by governmental behaviour. It's governed by corporate behaviour. It's governed by what a, a, an electoral community will tolerate. And I think we're actually hitting the edge of what the electoral community will tolerate. And to circle back to what we were talking about earlier about superannuation and the fact that the Murdoch scare campaign just is not scaring people the way that it used to, because you cannot look at a difference in what you're paying for groceries now to what you were paying for the same stuff a year ago, going, my wage has gone up, what, 3.5%, but I'm further and further behind. All of my expenses and what's going on with rental markets in this country is absolutely terrifying. Absolutely. Like these massive increases in rent that are really hurting people who are still paying more for all of these other things. Well, and yet the person with $3 million who's still renting. I, I mean, mean, the oppressed $3 million class, those yeah. 80,000 people, I want their names on a list. So I <laughs> pick them off one by one. Um, hello, Bronwyn Bishop. I'm sure you'll <laughs> mention this at some point. But those communists in the yurts, <laughs> their communist friends laughing along. No, no, I've got to do the Bronwyn Bishop voice. It is communism. It is absolutely outrageous. But it goes to that point, right, because you're 100% correct, Van. It it is what will we tolerate as a body politic, as a commonwealth? You know, will we tolerate people who have massive amounts of wealth getting tax concessions? Will we tolerate people profiting from people getting popcorn lung and dying in their 30s from something that is totally preventable? Will we tolerate a reserve bank deliberately making people unemployed, deliberately making it harder for people to buy a home, to rent a home? Will we tolerate that? That is fundamentally the question that we as a democracy, have to continually ask ourselves, what are we prepared to tolerate? And I think that's why Murdoch is failing. I think he's flailing around because on this, this has all happened in the space of a week, right? We're talking about in the space of a week, we have seen in the mainstream media that there are employers who are happy to let their workers die. And call them dogs as and, they're dying. And call them dogs as they're dying. We've seen the very wealthy demand multiples of the age pension in the form of tax concessions that they simply do not need, and the Reserve Bank go, well, sure, about 70% of inflation is due to profiteering, but what you really need is profitable banks, so we're going to jack up interest rates for the 11th time in a row. People just shake their heads and go... Am I watching some kind of weird sci-fi film? This is not real. Well, this is the thing. It doesn't need to be like this. And the opportunity presented to all of us by the fact that the new Labor government has been willing to move on superannuation reform. Mm. Like progressive governments can only go as far as the, the social discussion. You know, if we want an economy that is more inclusive, that is more re redistributive, which is more fair, that's actually an argument that which we have communist. to... more communist. <laughs> more, more communism. Um, you know, not full communism, but approaching so. Uh, 
that's actually an argument that we need to make. It's an argument we need to make culturally and publicly and through conversations and through media and the rest of it. The window is only as open as far as we collectively are willing to push it. Absolutely. And rather than panic or freak out, it's about making that concentrated political mobilisation going, actually, this superannuation stuff is a start. Yeah, and look, I think that's – and that's why, you know, we continually on this show come back to – why it's so important to be part of your union, right? Because that is an organised, mobilised group of people who can come together, who can come up with and work through policy issues and then go and create the space for governments to make change. Now, there are other ways to do that too, but fundamentally in a democracy, you've got to build... A coalition. ...of people who... And a mobilisation. ...want to see that change happen because... You know, one of the greatest uh, idiosyncrasies, I think, in modern language is the idea of the political leader. Politicians follow, right? We like the idea that our politicians are leaders and it makes us feel nice and safe when they stand up and they say reassuring leadership-style things. But the reality is that they follow. And even with the superannuation changes we're seeing, it's very modest. It's it's reducing the concession. It's not even taking it all away. Like they're still getting a concession on their superannuation. With the silicosis, we saw Tony Burke react to the public outcry and he reacted quickly and good on him for doing so. But politicians react. The people, the, the, the body politic is the people and we have to create the space. Joining your union, getting involved in your union is one way to do that. There are lots of community organisations doing that. Participating in things like the Fringe Festival. I would never have thought of this as a means of spreading the political word but here we are and we're having a conversation about what it means to participate in the Commonwealth of Australia. Exactly and I want to make this point to anyone in the audience who's a fringe participant as a performer or as a, another kind of maker, like our union, Mia, is part of that discussion as well. Absolutely. And the Australian Writers Guild that represents, I'm a member of both unions because I'm so holy, um, <laughs> is also part of that discussion. There is a union for everybody and the leadership of those organisations is part of a broad coalition of unionists who make demands of government on behalf of working people, whether they're actors or stonemasons or hairdressers or anybody else. You know, we are still part of that conversation. I think a lot of artists, I think because what we do is, you know, we work at night time and in yurts and are fun at parties that we can think that we're, you know, and a lot of us have quite marginalised experiences and, you know, work casually and don't earn a lot of money and all of it and think of things like home loans and interest rates as other people's sort of problems because our expectations are sort of lowered by our material circumstances, particularly early in our careers. And it's easy to think, oh, well, these sort of industrial fights and these economic fights are being fought elsewhere. Actually, the cultural movement is crucial to the kind of society that we build. Like ben and I are very fond of saying politics flows downstream from culture and the role of the artist and an artistic community in making political demands, industrial demands, is absolutely crucial. You know, having these discussions organising through our unions is as much a part of the fight for a greater equity. Absolutely. Note what I did there. Um, as anything else. Absolutely. And look, 
this is going to roll on, right? This uh, 2023 is going to be a very interesting year, I think, for a lot of people. The, the way this country runs, and it's not just in this country too. We don't have time to get into it today, but we will in future episodes, I'm sure. These are discussions that are happening all around the Western world because it's not just in Australia. Every, particularly English-speaking countries that have been touched by the invisible hand of the market of neoliberalism over the last 40 years. If somebody does Invisible Hand the Musical, I will die of joy. <laughs> <laughs> you can have that one for free, yeah, that's people. Right. I'm a collectivist. <laughs> this is going to keep... This is going to keep... I know there are clowns in this audience and I'm relying on all of you. This is going to keep coming up. But we should talk about some good news because we oh. like to make sure people don't leave the week on Wednesday going... Oh, my God, the whole world is just going to cave in on itself. Uh, I've got some great news, and it's about my my true favourite thing, which is, of course, cute, fluffy little animals. Um, some good news, and it's Australian good news. 29 Australian species have come off the endangered list, Woo! which is just... And, and not and not in the bad way, but in the good and, way. Yeah, and not in the not in the bad way where they die, in the good way where they're recovering. So Australia's Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act uh, has 446 species on it, which of course is outrageous. Uh, but 29 who were on it last time, and this report comes out every so often. It's always you know cause for alarm, except this time it's good news. 15 mammals, eight birds, four frogs, a reptile, and a fish are all okay. These include the golden western barred and eastern barred bandicoots. Happy bandicoot bandicoots. news. Um, the western quoll, the sooty albatross, the waterfall frog, the Flinders Range worm lizard, uh, the yellow-footed rock wallabies, uh, the greater bilby, the humpback whale, the growling grass frog, Murray's cod and others are safe. The really interesting, one of the reasons why the Murray cod is uh, replenishing its numbers is because people have uh, reminded themselves they're quite tasty. Oh. And an industry around Murray cod is developing, which will keep the fish alive and continue the circle of life for those like myself who are genocidal fish murderers and, and consumers. <laughs> but, I mean, this is really important and it represents like a, a global movement of collaboration and different forms of conservation, habitat preservation, you know, in, in, in regulation, governmental regulation, making the political argument for maintaining biodiversity, species protection. And also I want to highlight the scientific studies have come out recently identifying the crucial importance of zoos mm. and conservation zoos in protecting and extending the life of species that have been endangered. And again and again, zoos are collaborating with one another internationally in order to keep species alive. And the process of rewilding animals that were functionally extinct in the wild 40 years ago, like that amazing Mongolian horse, like all kinds of ibex and things, are being reintroduced because zoos have kept them alive. So that amazing Mongolian horse, the little horse, Przewski's horse, they were down to only 12 of them were left and they have now been successfully reintroduced into the wild because of the effort of zoos. The big demand now is to look at uh, conservation, like arboreal conservation, and the fact that species extinction is moving as quickly for plants as it is for animals, mm. but hasn't got that level of collaboration. And that's the next demand in terms of 
repairing this planet is to look at plant life and plant diversity and what we're doing collectively, maybe with an extra $2 billion a year from the 80,000 people who have ridiculous amounts of superannuation in order to look at our responsibilities to our environment in that way. I feel like there's going to be a long queue at Jim Chalmers' door for that money. No, I, I um, have a feeling there is. <laughs> but all the more reason to make progressive taxation arguments. What That's, do you reckon? I reckon you're right. What do you reckon, folks? Yeah. I also just want to give it. A quick shout out to the humpback whale, right? There is a classic example of community coming together going, we, we want to make sure that whales don't go extinct. And over a long period of time, the ban on whale hunting has resulted in now the humpback whale coming off the endangered species list. I think that's just, in my mind, that's an incredible long-term achievement. There are still 400 species, more than 400 species on that list, and we have a responsibility to get all of them off it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, we are now at the point of the show where I get to do my hex debt justifying performance of everybody who supports us and keeps us alive. That's right. The week on Wednesday live and the week on Wednesday and the weekend wrap uh, cost us money to make. There's no question about that. And part of that cost is offset by people going to buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday and becoming supporters. People give once off amounts. People chip in a buck a week. People chip in 10 bucks a month. People chip in 20 bucks a month. And everybody who contributes to the show, who is it, who has the capacity to do so, a bit of standard redistribution of wealth means that people who can't afford to buy the show, if we put it on the open market, can continue to enjoy it for free and get use out of it and spread the word. We will always make sure The Week on Wednesday is free to download and listen to and we want to thank our supporters for helping make that reality. And for Especially the ones who bought a ticket and came today. I know. Thank you. How awesome are you? And so beautiful and attractive and popular and good. I mean, we can say that. We're sitting right here and you're all beautifully well lit. Now, Van, you're going to read out our cadre. These are our $20 a month supporters who've helped grow our audience to nearly 800,000 people. Ban. Go. Steph, Karina Bali at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Shane Horse, love your work. Yeti, Yeet Yeti at Amy Bale, Declare, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Boris, Kristen Sakluna, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aiken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Geodi, Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Tamara James Bromman, Punch Drunk Veteran at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cartwright, Adelaide Ann Shiggles, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash. 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Narissa Simon at Katagal, Lauren Ash and Badger, Matthew Hadley, Naranga Man, John Sharp and Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, Red, White and Blue Lou. And our Extend the Reach supporters. He points at me. <laughs> Stuart Munn, Marky Mark, at Vicky and Bit, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Caddy, Carriedale 68, Frank Nahus, Erica Basuti, Ijo Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate, Helen, Kathy Hay, Donald Vaughan, Damian Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron, Tradragon, Daniel, Crazy Keza, John DeHaan, Ange Fennell, Anna Uren, at Ross Kenner 888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Didding, Jody A, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, at Knot, Dirms, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nadita Hannum, Maury Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Holden, at Gal Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Eliane and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Long Body, Sandy Baumgart, not Sandy Bean, Remain, Renee McGee, take that spoken word. Word artists. 
Nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. I well, only do this for your admiration, my darling. <laughs> <laughs> that is the week on Wednesday live from the Adelaide Fringe Festival. Thank you for joining us for our second show. There are two more shows to come. We will be back next week on the 8th and again on the 15th of March. Until then, we will have the weekend wrap on Sunday where I will be doing that from our shed, which is the traditional home of the week on Wednesday. Uh, but until then... If you want to keep up with my fringe adventures, follow me on social media where I am posting all the things I go to see. Until next time, love you, Vanny. Love you too. Bye. Bye.